about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Benerges, that means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. to keep that open. We're a few weeks into our series looking at the biography of Jesus written by Mark, uh, and we'll follow this all the way through to Easter, which will be excellent. Let me pray for us as we start. Father, we do pray that you bless us this evening with a deep appreciation of the glory of your Son, and that you would show him to us as we read and reflect, and that you would shake us and move us to bring him glory. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty bad with confrontations. Something about the way I was brought up, something about the way my family had a conflict, all these kinds of things just means that when people come and confront me or I have to confront someone else, I'm just a little bit queasy, I'm a little bit hesitant, I'm a little bit risk averse in that situation. That's just the way I'm made. Uh, I was talking to some people after a service before and they're the complete opposite. 
their job's about confrontation. They're like, bring it on. Uh, I, don't, I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me at all. Um, I, I wonder when you think about the things you know about Jesus, what category you kind of put him in. As someone adverse to confrontation, kind of always taking things gently, or someone kind of who takes confrontation as a serious part of who they are in their job. When I read chapters like this in, in Mark, I'm reminded that Jesus was a hugely provocative character, polemic and always confronting people in exact places at particular times in particular ways that would get under their skin. And what you see in this chapter is him doing that with religious leaders, with his family, with ordinary people, with scholars and church leaders. It's almost like he puts obstacles in the way of all of them. You know, if Jesus is not someone who at times confronts you with what he says and who he is and what he does, then there's a good chance you don't have the real Jesus in mind. What we learned from Mark 2 last week is that Jesus describes his coming and his ministry like new wine that bursts old wineskins. Something so radically free and new that nothing that has existed before it can contain it, control it, or make sense of it. Everything that Jesus brings with his kingdom and his, in his role as Messiah is utterly new. And because of that, it is confronting. It presses on our assumptions. It calls some things into question about our paradigms, about faith and spirituality and life. And when you feel confronted by Jesus, you're starting to grasp the fullness of his glory. So I want to invite you this evening to be confronted by Jesus. Three confronting things that Jesus brings about in this passage. Three new things that are confronting. The new wine and the old wineskins. A new Sabbath, new spiritual authority, and a new family. The three confronting things. First one is a new Sabbath. I'm actually going to rewind to verse 23 of chapter 2, because Mike said he left it for me. I haven't listened to his sermon, but he promised, so there you go. Uh, and, and Jesus uh, has two stories in a row in this part of Mark about the Sabbath day. Now, that might not mean much to you, but to modern Jews who work so hard to keep the Sabbath, and to ancient Jews, the Sabbath was a very serious thing. One of the Ten Commandments was to cease work in honor and worship and reverence for God. And ancient Jews spent a lot of time thinking, what does it actually mean to stop working? And they came up with what they thought that looked like. Here it is as a kind of periodic table, which I thought was fun but useless. Uh, it's all in Hebrew too, so there you go. Here it is as a, as a boring list. 39 things you were not to do on the Sabbath, just laid out very simply for everyone. My favorite is 39, transporting an object between a private domain and a public domain. So moving things, a distance of four cubits within the public domain. It's like, you know, moving stuff around, untying, sewing, tearing, trapping. This is how to not do work on the Sabbath in a way that honors God according to Jewish tradition. But what you see Jesus' disciples doing is transgress number three in verse 23 of chapter two. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. That's reaping. 
and the Pharisees who kept watch on how people kept the laws as a way of honoring God saw it. They said, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, this might seem just a quibble to you over rules. But in verse 6 of chapter 3, this dispute becomes the reason why the Pharisees start to plot Jesus' death. So what they see him do next is so provocative and confronting that they feel they need to terminate him. Right? What does he do that's so provocative? Well, the way Jesus answers them is he calls a precedent from the Old Testament to do with King David that we read from, from 1 Samuel. There's a one time in Samuel where, G, where David walks into a temple and takes some of the holy bread that no one was to take but the priests and gives it to some of his followers. And it's a really interesting precedent to bring up like is Jesus saying you know it's all right to break the rules sometimes because this guy David did once in the Old Testament seems like a strange thing to do but the point is not that David broke some rules but that David broke some rules God's Messiah God's chosen king in 1 Samuel was able to act in freedom in a different way And Jesus goes on to say that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath in verse 28, speaking of himself. So what he's saying is, just as David, when David was around, he was Messiah, and as Messiah could act differently, so another Lord of the Sabbath, the final Lord of the Sabbath, has come. And in the same way, is acting on the Sabbath as he sees fit. This isn't a quibble about rules. This is about authority. This is about power. This is about who Jesus is and who the Pharisees are. And Jesus claims to be the Lord of a new Sabbath. And he demonstrates this at the beginning of chapter 3, where there's another scene and the Pharisees are now watching. They know that he transgresses on the Sabbath. He, He did point three. What will he do next? And there's a man with a shriveled hand. Uh, and they're waiting to see what will happen, whether he'd heal on the Sabbath. And you might be thinking, well, that's kind of, of course you could heal on the Sabbath. That's crazy. Uh, but the only exceptions to uh, doing the Sabbath that existed were things like this. If a man has a pain in his throat, uh, they may drop medicine into his mouth on the Sabbath, since there is doubt whether life is in danger. And whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath. So if you're having a baby or if you're about to die, you can get some help. But other than that, forget it. And healing the, a withered hand is hardly something that is desperately in need of. And so Jesus' healings were taboo even of the Sabbath law. Now what does Jesus do? He, at his confrontational best, he gets the man to stand up in front of everyone, gets a platform, gets a placard above him. And then announces a question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And then he angrily looks around the room. You see, Jesus is infuriated 
at the way the Pharisees have taken the Sabbath so far away from what it truly meant and what it truly was about. If you look back to the Old Testament laws at when it's commanded to do the Sabbath, do you know the reason that's in the text? It's about remembering being taken out of slavery and it is a means of giving relief to slaves and to animals. It's supposed to be a way of shortcutting oppressive slavery. The Sabbath is about giving relief and life. That's what it was made for. That's why it was instructed in Israel. They were to do it as a memory of being released and relieved from slavery and to release and relieve others from a similar but different slavery. And so for Jesus, there is nothing more natural than to relieve suffering on the Sabbath, to give life. And yet the Pharisees on the same Sabbath decide to kill. And there's this great confrontation of authority between the two because Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of a new Sabbath, a final Sabbath, where all things can be remade, where no amount of fire cannot be undone, or loss of life or limb or illness or pain or death, release from not only sin and death, but all decay, a final Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of a new Sabbath. And him in his authority and glory come into conflict with these nick-pitting Pharisees who've shrunk the Sabbath to pint size. Jesus is the Lord of a new Sabbath. Now, this is, I think, actually instructive for the way you do your holidays, just briefly, before we get to the next one. I know that sounds strange, but you know how this time of year, you can inhale sport like it's going out of style. You can go to the beach as much as you like. But there's something about this time of year that that real rest, real settling, seems hard to come by. Do you know why? I find this this time of year all the time. Like I try and rest, but I can't. It's because there's a Lord of the Sabbath. It's because ultimately the one who brings relief and rest and freedom is the Lord Jesus. And what I found even this week is that I need small moments to come to him to find rest. And indeed, the discipline of Sabbathing, of taking time off in your week, is a declaration that actually your to-do list won't save your life or your soul or the planet, nor will your job, nor will your good intentions, nor will your plans for the future, but only the Lord of the Sabbath. And so resting and stopping is a declaration of faith in his sovereign goodness and power. So why don't you Sabbath in January, defiantly? That's confrontation number one. Confrontation number two is about a new spiritual authority that Jesus brings. Because what what happens in verse 7 to 19 is that Jesus' ministry kind of expands and multiplies. People come to him from Judea and Tyre and Sidon, from Idumea, from all kinds of places. 
and they come and he proclaims and he drives out demons and he heals. And then he summons the 12 to himself and he sends them out to preach and to drive out demons as well. It's almost like the, the geographic area and reach of his mission is just expanding and expanding and expanding. And he gets known as this exorcist, as this one who has the ability to drive out evil spirits. It's almost like Mark is stressing for us that as the divine son, he has power even over the the darkness, the spiritual darkness that seems unmatchable. Now, talk of spiritual darkness in 21st century Western world is not, we don't really do that. We don't really talk about the evil powers behind things, about spirits and devils and things like that. Uh, But that's actually caused a problem for us in trying to make sense of a lot of the evil that's happening. In this little and this interesting book, The Death of Satan, um, Del Banco kind of looks through American history and how uh, the loss of talk of Satan and evil and demons has led to a lack of ability to explain why evil happens. The simple fact is, is that the things that keep happening in our world seem to be more than just people making irrational mistakes all the time. They seem to tap a deeper well to be more insidious and endemic than our good intentions can rid us of. And actually what we should see when we look at the ministry of Jesus and his power over the spiritual forces, we should look afresh at our world and realize actually there is a deeper darkness, a deeper evil that needs to be rid And that's actually a very helpful way of explaining the way the world is. But this news of Jesus' exorcist goes out, and some people come down from Jerusalem to take a look and to explain what it's about. Teachers of the law in verse 22 come down, and they say, this is their interpretation, their official word, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Basically, they think Jesus is Voldemort. Or something like that. I don't know. That he's some sort of magician sorcerer. That his ability to manipulate dark power comes from dark power. Not just from some dark power, but from the prince. From the devil himself. Beelzebub is another name. It's a pretty strong thing to say, but you can see how they get there. That Jesus is some sort of sorcerer with a dark origin. There's ancient sources that say things like that about Jesus, that he was a conjurer. But Jesus has a bit of a thought experiment about this. He says, well, let's logic that out a bit. If how can Satan drive out Satan, he says, and if if a kingdom is divided, if if it gets divided, kind of a civil war between the two, it starts falling apart. A house divided against itself can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand and his end has come. Basically, if Satan's plan is to send me to destroy his work, then that's a pretty bad plan and will end in his own demise. Like This just doesn't make sense. Your interpretation, according to Jesus, does not make sense. Here's a better one, he says. In fact, no one 
can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. What is Jesus claiming? That he can drive out demons because he can bind the prince himself. That he has walked into the house, bound its owner, and is releasing the captives. That in him is a new spiritual authority that can overrun the darkness itself. That can tap the very head and root of evil. That can drive out the devil. Friends, this is great news. Of something that can happen that we have no power to make happen. To drive away not just the superficial evil, but the deep root of it. Jesus claims and demonstrates a remarkable authority. But then he turns on them. Do you see this? He reinterprets and then he throws it back with a very strong warning. He talks about how forgiveness is possible for everyone, for everything. Chapter 2, that's what his mission is about. Chapter 1, John the Baptist, forgiveness of sin. That's why Jesus has come. That's what his kingdom is about. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. How about that for a confronting comeback? What is Jesus saying? How can he talk about the possibility of forgiveness, but then about this disastrous thing that can happen, that these people are in danger of? Well, the secret, I think, is in the word blaspheme. Because what does blaspheming mean? Blaspheming means taking someone's name in vain, attaching to their name the wrong things, inappropriate things that undermine who they are. And as it says in verse 30, what they're saying is that Jesus has an impure spirit in him. The dark powers operate in his authority. But we know from Mark 1 that the Holy Spirit is in Jesus. And so these scribes have rocked up and they have called the Holy Spirit the devil. They have named what is the third person of the Trinity in all his beauty and honor and glory of the darkness. They have placed their own spiritual lens over the reality of Jesus and his ministry in the power of the Spirit and rejected him as darkness. And to come to that place with Jesus and to push him aside like that is to end up in a position where you can't receive his forgiveness because you don't want him and you don't believe he can give it. And so what we have here is not an act that you could do accidentally or may have done or might do. But the reality is, if this is Jesus, if this is his spiritual authority, then you either take him as he is, or you lose him. You either take him as the Holy Spirit brings him to you, or you lose him and what he is about. 
And that's what these teachers from Jerusalem are in danger of doing, dismissing him as of the devil. Now, what do we do with this warning? Is this helpful for us or not? I think it is still quite helpful and it is a warning for us to not place spiritual lenses of our culture or of our time or of our life or of our experience over the ministry of Jesus. Reinterpreting him with our ideas and our system and our place. Relegating his extraordinary glory to an ordinary place. To relegate Jesus to anything else is to lose him and his kingdom. And instead we are to receive him as he is, as the Holy Spirit gives him to us. In all of his glory and goodness. Laying aside all our religious and spiritual ideas and systems. To let him be the spiritual authority that drives out darkness. Because he is the one that bursts the wineskins. Utterly new. We can talk more about that later if you have more questions. But there's one more thing I want to say. One, one final confrontation that Jesus has. I think this might be the biggest one. It's about family. And this curious thing happens in this passage. There's this whole discussion of dark powers and it's sandwiched in talk about family. In verse 21, Jesus' family come to take charge of him, which is code for let's get him out of here and put him back in bed because he's, lo- he's lost it. He's mad. Uh, we, need to, we need to get him out of this situation until he's in his right mind again. And then at the end of the passage, they, the, the, we hear that Jesus' mother and brothers are there and they're standing outside and they send someone in because they can't even get to Jesus. And the crowd does... Chinese whispers through and and they tell him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Outside looking for you, not inside. They're out there. He's in here, surrounded by his people. And he says provocatively, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks at those seated around him and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. In one short phrase, Jesus, in a remarkably patriarchal society where your father and his father mattered and the patch of ground they lived and died on was everything, and the ties of your blood meant everything for your work and your life, he says that the ragtag bunch of tax collectors and fishermen and nothings around him are his family. That the spiritual family that gathers around him is of higher importance, higher priority than any blood tie, than any other possible claim on him. That to belong to his family is to belong to a family that should supersede all other things that you are a part of. It is remarkably provocative. And I think there's the kind of equal opposite dangers we can do in handling this reality. If you really want to take it seriously, that being a spiritual family around Jesus is of higher priority than even those of your blood. On the one hand, we can forget that actually being family is pretty ordinary, pretty simple. 
It's about just hanging out and being with each other. That's what Jesus says back in verse 14. When he talks about the 12, he says, he appointed the 12 that they might, what, be with him and preach and drive out demons. You know, these disciples being Jesus' family meant being on the road together, meant having meals together, it meant doing life together. It was ordinary, and yet it was extraordinary. Because what makes you Jesus' family? Whoever does God's will is my brother and my mother. It's not a family just gathered for its own sake, but a family gathered to do the will of a heavenly father, to do the will of God, to walk in the way of the kingdom, to walk in the way of Jesus. You know, we can equal opposite errors of making it just about hanging out or make it over-spiritualized, and it's, it's both. It's being together enough that we can together grow into the obedience that we're summoned to by this new spiritual authority, by this Lord of the Sabbath. And we are summoned into this family as a priority over everything. You know, Ed Shaw talks about this in his book, and he talks about how you know, acting like a church family doesn't mean adding lots of things to your to-do list. It just means involving your brothers and sisters in what you're doing anyway. Getting the yogurt together, doing finance together, going to the beach, seeing movies, spending time with each other so that we can talk about how we're following the Lord Jesus and honoring him and worshiping him and being his and honoring the fact that we are part of something gathered around him that is huge. The Lord of the Sabbath summons us to a new family. So were you feeling confronted? This Lord of a, a final Sabbath who has a remarkable spiritual authority that you cannot trifle with, who summons you out of your life into a new family. Friend, if you're feeling confronted or conflicted by this, then you are in the right place. Because if you're feeling pressed on, then you're starting to see him for who he is. As someone who can't just fit into your neat, drawn-up plan about life, but will burst it apart in the glory of his kingdom and his coming. And you know what? All this confrontation led to conflict that led to plans, that led to plots, that led to his execution. You see, Jesus became the one who was put to death that you might enjoy the life of his Sabbath. He was thrown under spiritual darkness, that you might be brought into spiritual light. His father forsook him, that you might have a father forever. See, if your heart is feeling pressed on and you're not sure whether to go with this or not, then look to the one, this Lord of the Sabbath, this high spiritual king, who confronted us in this world to die for us, that we might gain all that is his. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray by your Spirit this evening that you would show us the real glorious Jesus. Not the one we've made up, not the one we domesticate, but the real one. 
the Lord of the Sabbath, who will bring about relief and renewal, the great head of our family, the great king of all spiritual darkness, who laid down his life to win us. Father, confront us, we pray, that we might experience him, know him, and love him. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.